Good morning. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're at our Leeward campus today. I know it's a holiday weekend, which is kind of fun, and I hope you have a really restful, fun weekend, and we're glad you're here. Uh, Before the message this morning, I'd like us to continue in a spirit of prayer. Would you pray with me before we open God's word? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Our souls cluttered with self-absorption and the noise of a broken world and broken lives. And I'd ask in your grace and in your mercy, in your tender mercies, that you would open our eyes to see your glory and open our ears to hear your music and tune our hearts to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a Trekkie fan. Um, Maybe some of you are Trekkie fans here today. Um, I'm not a real big Trekkie fan, but I live with someone who is a Trekkie fan. In fact, I've lived with her for 31 wonderful years. And uh, Liz grew up being a Star Trek fan, and uh, some of you are Trekkies know that a big event has just occurred in the Trekkie universe. Uh, Yes, Star Trek Into Darkness has come on the screen. And uh, when Liz and I were out of town last weekend doing a wedding in Texas, we had a little bit of time to go to a matinee. And so we headed to Star Trek Into Darkness. (laughs) I liked the movie, I really did. I I didn't grow up hearing all the dynamics. I know some of the Trekkie lingo inside language and there were moments of great humor. And we found ourselves, you know, glued to the screen. It was really an amazing movie with all kinds of action. But what I discovered was every once in a while, Liz and I would both, our eyes would leave the screen and we'd look, turn and look at each other. Especially in a funny moment or sort of a Trekkie insider moment, we'd look at each other as if to savor the delight of the moment. And when I looked around at other people, especially couples, I presume there were couples that were sitting next to each other in the theater, I also noticed the same thing. Have you noticed that? Like in a movie, there's a moment of laughter or some kind of delight, and we look at the person next to us who came with us, because somehow we want to savor in that moment, we want to share that sense of delight. Have you ever thought, and maybe you've not entertained this thought, but have you ever thought why it is that we express our delight with praise? And not only that, why we instinctively almost want to share this delight with others. Why do we praise what we delight? And why do we just sort of want to share that with someone else? It's a good question, isn't it? Most of us have that experience. Maybe a funny joke. Have you ever tried to tell a joke to yourself and laugh? I mean, you certainly need somebody else there, right? You chuckle, you get a kick out of it, but you want to share it with somebody else. And not only that, uh, it may be a great meal. You know, I'm a foodie. I love good meals. Um, And when you're a part of a good meal that's beautifully arranged and all the courses go together and all the senses are enveloped in this sense of culinary beauty, when you're done, you can't help but do what? Don't say burp or something. (laughs) You, You can't help but praise it, right? It's like, that's the best meal I've ever had. You ever said that? Or, one of the things I love about Kansas are the sunsets. 
I know there are great sunsets across the ocean, but I think Kansas has some of the best sunsets in the world. So when I see a sunset that's awesome, I find myself saying out loud or to anyone near me, did you see that? Come and see it. And if they're not there, I take a picture of my smartphone and I send it to somebody. And you do too, whether it's you put it on Facebook or there's something you want to share with someone else. When you are delighted by something, when you love something, you want to express it in praise and you want to share it with someone else. It may seem that you and I are sort of hardwired for this, that we are hardwired to praise what we delight in and to share that delight and praise with others. A pretty smart chap thought a lot about this question. Uh, His name is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist for a long time in his worldview, but he converted to Christianity as professor at Oxford. He thought a lot about this, and I love what he says in answering this question. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And then he says something extraordinarily profound. It is its appointed consummation. What is Lewis saying? I think he's saying that when we delight in something, we simply cannot help but praise it. That affectionate delight has a trajectory to praise. It gets there. It just goes there. It has to go there. That the crescendo of love, love's grand crescendo, is praise. What we truly love, we praise. In fact, we were hardwired for that. Lewis is not the first one to discover this. In the 20th century, if we scroll back in human history, we realize that 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew poets also knew this and wrote about it. One of the most brilliant Hebrew poems ever written, included in Israel's hymnal of praise for God's covenant people to worship together, set to music, is Psalm 103. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 103, or if you have your electronic Bible, turn there with me if you would. As a church family this year, we are going through the Bible, and uh, we are enjoying reading a chapter or so every day, right? Or if we're all, some of us are reading the whole thing. But if you've not been a part of our Open Here journey, I encourage you to jump in. And and we started in January, and now... uh, It's May, and we are in the section, the Old Testament section of the poetry. Last week, we began this section of Holy Scripture that is truly extraordinary. And Pastor Kevin began the conversation on Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. They're called the Hebrew Psalter. 150 chapters, collections of ancient Israel's manual of worship. Last week, Pastor Kevin began where the Psalms began, 
and that is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 calls us to a life of wisdom. And the main idea in that beautiful poetry of the tree is that we would hide God's word in our heart and meditate on it day and night. That we would hear God's words. This morning, as we look at Psalm 103, we scoot up a bit in another section of the Psalms. We encounter Psalm 103, which is not a call to wisdom, it is a call to praise. It is not just to hide God's word in our heart, it is to hear his music. Now, as you have your Bible open, remember that as we enter into Psalm 103, this is poetry. It is poetry that has been put to music for a group of people to worship God together. Interesting that in the original language, this poem has 22 lines. And in the Hebrew alphabet, there are 22 letters. The Psalms were written not only to help us see the beauty of their arrangement, but to enhance our memory of them. For example, there's something about music that even precedes language. Interesting, I've been reading a very thick tome uh, by Ian Gilchrist, one of the leading neuroscientists of the world. It's called The Master and His Emissary. It's a very thick work, but it's highlighting the newest research in neuroscience. And it's interesting that neuroscientists, regardless of their worldview, are telling us that in human development, whatever we understand by that, that music comes first and then language. For example, we remember music, don't we, and the words attached to it. Now, whether you're younger or older this morning, uh, or in between, if I were to start like this, if I were to say, love, love me too, you know I love you. You don't even have to be a Beatles fan to know that. You can finish it, right? You know I'll be true, so please, love me too. Or if I were to start like this, more common hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You don't even have to be a Christian. You don't even have to, you know, uh, affirm Christ or be a part of a church, maybe visit it, and you know what those words are. See, we forget everything, don't we? Most of us, as we get older, we forget a lot. But there's something about music and memory that are tied together. Music resonates with us. It sticks with us. Music becomes part of us. The Psalms are like this. And Psalm 103 is certainly at the head of the pack. The psalmist, when he invites us into this beautiful poem put to music, asks us not just to understand what is being said. He invites us to hear the music that is playing. Poetry, in whatever language, but particularly Hebrew intonation, invites us to hear It invites us to open our ears and join the chorus of praise. Whether at the dawn of creation or the midpoint of redemption or the future point of sweet consummation, the psalmist tells us from beginning to end that the music of the universe is praise. 
And he asks us, through this brilliant poetry, two questions. First, do we hear the music? And secondly, will we join in and sing the song? Now, if you uh, want to take notes this morning, I usually encourage you to do this. And you might not this morning. But if you want to, because this beautiful psalm was written to be heard more than analyzed. But if you want a bit of its poetic development, it follows the beautiful threeness of Hebrew. And there are three directional progressions of where this poem starts and where it ends. Let me frame it for you briefly. Some of you might want that. In verses one and two, we hear the psalmist invite us to join in with the sound. Join in, he says. In verses three through 18, he says, okay, come on, sing it out. And it all builds to verses 19 through 22, and he says, let's praise the king. So the development of this poem follows a threefold progression. Let's join in, let's sing it out, and let's praise the king. Now notice verses one and two. The psalmist begins, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. The psalmist begins his poem, put to music with praise, and it's a call to praise. Now you will notice that this language is about him. He starts this poem of praise talking to himself, if I'm going to say that. It's first person. And you will notice, if you scoot down to the end of the poem, in verse 22, that the psalmist ends with the same words. He starts with himself, and he ends with himself. It's a bookend of praise. Now, in between, there is a progression. He starts with himself. He says, come on, soul. Right? And then he invites, there's a shift of the second person. He invites us as a reader to join in. And then, as it builds, he invites the whole universe to praise with him. And then he ends with himself. Why? Why does he start with himself and begin with himself when it's a communal call to praise in corporate worship? I think there's something here we need to sort of play with. At soul level, I want to suggest to you that the psalmist needed some prompting to get his soul to praise. And he says from, literally, the picture is from my top of my head to the bottom of my toes, all this within me, come on. That's what he's saying to himself. He needs his heart retuned to praise. And if you have your Bible open, you might see above Psalm 103, this superscription that ties a long, multi, multi, multi-year history and tradition that David wrote this psalm. And I think that's significant because I think that is true but when we think about David's life, we know there were some really high, high mountaintops, right? If you study the Old Testament, and really low, melancholy moments in his life. Think about the lows. 
David, as a young man, is chased by this demented King Saul. You ever been chased when someone wanted to kill you? That's a brutal deal. But not only that, when you think about his story, he had a wife who rejected him. Some of you have had spouses who rejected you. Deep wound of his heart. His own sin enslaved him. The temptation to adultery, he committed murder. You talk about brokenness. And he had a son, Absalom, who betrayed him. Now, I don't know where David is in this spectrum of his life, but I want to suggest to you he is facing hard times. His soul doesn't want to praise God. It wants to grovel in the mess of his life and brokenness. I have a hunch when he woke up that morning, when he penned these words, he didn't want to bless God or praise God at all. I doubt if he heard the music in his soul when he began to pen these words. And I think David's right where we are. Most of us find ourselves there often. Some of us woke up this morning. Whether we're a morning person or a night person, we were going, oh my. I don't feel like praising God. I don't even feel like going to church. It's Memorial Day weekend. I should chill out. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you had a really difficult week. As the Leewood congregation or Leewood campus this week, many of us felt the deep sadness of a loss of a young man that we loved. Maybe you face some really big losses in your life this week. Maybe you had the most difficult decision at work and it's still hanging over you. Difficult decision where there's not an easy path forward in your business or your work. A difficult person you're supervising, someone maybe you need to let go. And your soul is in knots over it. Or maybe you're dealing with a difficult boss like that. Maybe it's a family situation that just, or a family member that's driving you crazy. Or a health situation that's just wearing you down. Or you're overwhelmed and you're exhausted with life. This is where I think David was. The psalmist is right where we are. And he says to himself, literally the picture is, come on, soul. Come on, come on. Bless the Lord, come on. Wake up to the music, soul. Wake up to the wonder of God's world. Bless the Lord, come on, come on, come on, soul. I don't know if he was in a shower or not, but that's sort of my first thing. Come on, Lord, bless. Let me bless, come on, soul, Tom, come on. My soul's still not here. Come on, soul, that's the picture. And notice how he primes the pump. He remembers in a fresh way who God really is and what God has done. That's where he goes. Notice how the psalmist emphasizes blessing or praising God's holy name. Do you see that in the second verse? When we think of names, we often think of an identifier. You know, I, my name's Tom. I kind of like that name. My parents gave it to me. Um, but it's not that big a deal. It's what identifies me. But when the psalmist says bless his holy name, he means something very important. Because in this cultural context, in this poetic context, the name was a resume an exhaustive resume of their character and attributes of someone. God's holiness, his distinctness from all creation, his power, that he is the bedrock of all the reality. That's what he says. That's where he starts. He gets his eyes off himself. His puny self, his puny problems, he gets his eyes on God. And he begins to hear the music. The psalmist understood what we need to understand. The most important thing for us is not to be happy, 
It's not to find self-actualization. It's not to be fulfilled ultimately. It is to remember who God is every day and to align our life with him. This is where he goes. If I were to ask you, what is the most important thing about you, what would you say to me? Your career, it's a good thing. Your grandkids, great thing. Great things, great people. Where you live, where you work, where you go to school, what your favorite music is, you know, all those things are good things. But they are not what's really most important about you. In his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, David Hoser says it better than anyone I know. When he writes these words, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Now notice what he says here. This is stunningly brilliant. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. The psalmist begins his poem addressing the idolatrous thoughts that are unworthy of God. He re-remembers who God really is, that he is absolutely holy. At the end of verse two, you'll notice the psalmist transitions now. He remembers not only who God is, but what he has done for a sin-ravaged people and planet. He tells his soul and all of us not to forget God's benefits. Or if we were to translate this Hebrew text, we would say all of God's awesome goodness, all of his love. And then in this, what has to be a microburst of stunning praise, beginning in verse three, he offers up this praise list. And notice the shift again from first person to second person as he invites us in, much like Pastor Randy or any worship leader. Okay, let's sing, y'all. It's a southern worship leader. Let's sing. So he says, join in. But now let's sing it out loud. That's, that's the poetic music here. And verses 3 through 18 are arranged around this, prime, uh, this primary list and a primary metaphor. First, the list. The psalmist invites us to remember the goodness and kindness of God with him. That's the focus. Now notice, if you have your Bible open, starting with verse 3. These are... Sharp little jabs in the human heart. He forgives and heals us. He redeems us from the pit, said verse four. He crowns us with steadfast love. Verse five, he satisfies us with good. He works justice for all who are oppressed, verse six. Do you see that? He reveals himself to us, verse seven. He is merciful and gracious, verse eight. He is slow to anger and abounding in loyal love or steadfast love or covenantal love. He is not always angry, verse 9. He does not give us what our sins deserve, verse 10. His loyal love, his covenantal love is beyond measure, verse 12. Do you see it? He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He shows us compassion, verse 13 and 14. He knows our weakness and frailty, verses 15 and 16. His loyal love extends forever to those who keep his covenant, verses 17 through 18. And the idea here poetically is, how could we not love and praise a God like that? 
How could we not praise him? What an awesomely good God. Now notice, if you love poetry, some of you do, some of you maybe you don't, but the arrangement is extraordinarily beautiful because poetry has not only contrast, it has parallelism. And what you have here is this riveting contrast and parallel between three words for God's love and three words for our sin and the extraordinary contrast between God's holiness and our brokenness. You will notice human brokenness with three words, iniquity, sins, and transgressions. You can look at this later. And then contrasting God's grace, his loyal love, and his compassion. This word compassion is his tender love. It's a love of a parent for a child. What is on display here? What is on display is the tender love of God. And placed right in the middle in its structure is a primary metaphor to drive it home to our hearts. Now, the metaphor is about a father. And I want you to notice that Hebrew poetry is not primarily something we look at as much as something we look through. And when we look through this poem, we see Jesus everywhere. His footprints, his nail-scarred footprints are everywhere in this psalm. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said that all of Scripture points to him. The footprints of his incarnate grace are bouncing off every verse. In John 3.16, we read this great text, right? For God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is Jesus' atoning work on the cross that makes possible God's forgiveness of our horrific sin. It is Jesus' blood-stained cross and empty tomb that makes it possible for us to live lives that are redeemed from the pit of hell itself. That's the pit language in this poem. It is Jesus, the sinless lamb of God who covers our sin that makes it possible for a holy God to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. Amen? What good news! What music to our ears is what the psalmist is saying. What an amazing praise list we have. You know, many of us uh, have a prayer list, right? I mean, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while and want to grow in your spiritual formation, we often have a prayer list. We're praying for people, and we might write it down in our phone or our iPad or a piece of paper, and we pray through a list, and that's a good thing. But how many of us have a praise list that prompts our hearts to praise God for his many benefits in our life? Perhaps one of the most tangible takeaways this morning from this message and this text is to develop your own praise list of God's mercy and grace in your life and all his goodness and forget not any of his benefits. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I grew up in the church, a wonderful church. I grew up and as a little kid, uh, we would sing a song in Sunday school and I won't sing it for you, but we said, count your blessings, name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I learned as a young boy the importance of counting my blessings of prompting my heart to praise. And if we do not learn, whatever age we are, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, to count our blessings, 
we will be crushed by our brokenness. Praise list helps us tune out the white noise of a cluttered soul and to hear his music again. Verses 3 through 18 are arranged as a praise list. And in the midst I mentioned, there's a metaphor. Verse 13 tells us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear or revere him. Why is this so important? It's right in the structural center of it. But there's something amazing here. If you read the Psalms carefully, 150 of them, this metaphor will stun you. There are only two other times in 150 Psalms where God is referred to as Father and then just a quick touch, a glance. Here, God as Father is at the heart of the poem of David. Why is this so important? The Old Testament, we understand the redemptive history of God. God is seen as the royal king and this is a part of this Psalm, right? He'll move to his royal throne, his power. But in the Old Testament, the fatherness of God was not fully revealed. But then Jesus comes. Our Lord Jesus emphasizes God the Father, you remember? God as Father is central to Jesus' teaching and his life. He will say, I and the Father are one. His parables will highlight the Father like the parable of the prodigal son. The Father out of God, his tender mercies, his love, his kindness. And on the cross, he will say what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Apostle Paul will say it is the kindness of God that leads you and me to repent. It is his kindness, his tender love for us. And that's on such display in this beautiful poem. I also want to suggest to you that in all this mystery of Jesus' divinity and humanity, yet without sin, Jesus as a young boy knew this text In the synagogue, he studied the three parts of the Old Testament, the Torah, the foundation, the prophets, the Navim, the writings, the Katayim, the the writings. And he read this psalm. He knew this psalm. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus, the influence of Psalm 103 and all that mystery of his divinity plays out in the Lord's Prayer. Notice David begins his poem of praise Bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Notice the name. How does Jesus begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Good metaphor, huh? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. David says, who satisfies us with good things. And the good things here in the text means nourishment and care and protection and food and clothing and all of life. Flourishing. And Jesus says, what? Give us this day, our daily bread. David says, who forgives all our sin? And Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you could go through the whole psalm that way. See, when we look through Psalm 103, we've got to understand we see Jesus' footprints everywhere. And we see the fatherhood of God in a way that draws us, draws us to his heart and lets us hear his music. Now, I don't talk much about my dad because I don't remember much about him. 
I often, if you've been a part of Christ's community, you know it's hard for me not to talk about my mom a lot. But my dad was a wonderful person and a follower of Jesus. And I don't have very many memories of him, but I remember Thanksgiving Day like it was yesterday. Thanksgiving was a great time. We invited neighbors. It was a big table. It was all kinds of food. I love food. I told you that already. And my dad, at the head of the table, you know, would carve the turkey, and then he'd take his big Bible, and it was a thick one. It must have weighed 1,000 pounds as a kid. It was like huge. And he would open it up to Psalm 103 every year. He would read it through. And sometimes it seemed like it took forever and I was hungry and the food was getting cold, right? But he wanted us not just to see the words or to hear the words, but to hear the music of the universe play. Every line in his prayer after the psalm was all about Jesus. My dad was not a trained theologian, but he heard the music of Psalm 103 and heard Jesus in every Hebrew word. The psalmist declares again in Psalm, in the verse 19 here, the Lord has established his throne and that's where he goes, right, in the heavens. He says, let's join in, let's sing out loud, okay, let's, let's praise the king and that's where he builds in this wonderful poem, praise. He says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, notice that in verses 20 through 22, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, all my soul. What stands out here is something rather unique. As the curtains of the heavens open before David, David calls all of creation to join him in praise. And he does something very unusual. He repeats four times And in the Hebrew poetry, you hear it four times in English, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Four times, that is very rare in scripture. Normally, an intonation is three times. Remember Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, he says, holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy is the Lord. This time, David is so overwhelmed as he calls the universe to join in the music of praise. He says, bless the Lord, praise, 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 praise. It's amazing. It is as if you hear George Frederick Handel's refrain. In the great Messiah, George Handel heard the music of the universe play. King of kings, Lord of lords, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah. This is where David is. And we hear the distant thunder in Psalm 103 of Revelation chapter 5. When John writes these words, then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of what? Many angels. Numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth And under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing, honor, glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. See, what we truly love, we praise. Praise delight, its inevitable trajectory is the music of the universe 
love's grand crescendo. It is its appointed consummation. The music of the universe is praise. Psalm 103 calls us out with two questions. Do we hear the music? And will we sing along? To hear the music, we need new ears. And Jesus says each of us must be born again from above. We need to find and experience through his grace new creation life. When we recognize that we are sinful and broken and that Christ has died for us and shed his blood for us and we embrace him as our Lord and Savior by faith, it's nothing that we could ever do or have done. It's only Jesus himself, what he has done. And at the cross, we cling right there. And God does this amazing thing. He makes us a new creation because of what his son has done. And not only when you come to faith in Jesus Christ do you have new eyes to see the world differently, you have been given new ears ears to hear the song sung. And Jesus puts a new song in your heart and he says, please join in with the sound. Come on, sing it out loud. Praise the king. Praise the king. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said it so well. He said, uh, there's two things he understood as he heard the music of the universe play. In Amazing Grace, he said, I know that these two things. First of all, I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. So do you know the one who Psalm 103 points out? Do you know the King of Kings? Is there a new song in your heart? One of the greatest evidence of being born again greatest evidence of new life in Christ and being a true Christian is there's a song in your heart that cannot be extinguished. And you hear his music play even when life is really hard. He asks you to join in with the sound. So do you hear the music? Are you singing with it? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the night he is betrayed, before he goes to the cross, he gathers his disciples and they sing a hymn. He wants them to make sure they hear the music of the universe play. Isn't it interesting that Colossians chapter 3 tells us that the local church, the local church is the place where we sing together the music of the universe. Colossians chapter 3 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in us teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and notice the emphasis of music, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Do we see the prominence and importance of collective worship together of singing the song? We hear the music together. We are called to sing the music together all ages, young and old, as we gather and reach in our hearts to praise. And one thing I just so love about where we are increasingly going as a church family is that we are encouraging all generations to worship together. I remember as a little kid growing up at church, six years old, I was fidgeting often when the pastor was preaching. It's okay if you're doing that. Uh, my parents must have wondered, is he ever getting anything out of this? but the music of the universe was imprinted on my soul through the great songs and hymns we sung. And I still hear the music. Not only do I hear the music, the music has become part of me. If you're younger today or parents with younger children, the importance of your children hearing the music as God's people sing it is hugely important. 
The music of the universe is praise. Do you hear the music? Will you join in the singing? And praise the king. Lewis was right, as he often was. He said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment is its appointed consummation. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to hear your music once again. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Lord, teach us not only to pray as a congregation, but to praise. Put a new song in each one of our hearts and in our congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.